So I've been thinking a lot this week about empathy, um, about times where I've been walking through something hard and people have maybe responded poorly. Um, but funnier than that, I think, is times where I have responded poorly. So I thought I would start with um, a story that actually involves Lauren Schutz. Um, a couple of years ago, she had shared with me that she was pregnant with Noah. And she was kind of just being like, just a good friend, super vulnerable, sharing um, that she was walking through struggling with fear and, uh, and describing all that it felt like. And my response to her was like, oh, you shouldn't feel afraid. <laughs> uh, like that's probably not good for the baby. And um, <laughs> like, I'm really going to be praying for peace. And like, I hope that God meets you in the midst of that. And I, I mean, honestly, in my head, I was just like, she just shouldn't be scared because this is, you know, every, a lot of people are pregnant and it's fine. <laughs> um, and so that passed. I didn't think twice about it. And then a couple months later, she was sharing with me um, something less serious, but still when you're there, it's, it matters a lot, um, that she was like really craving a margarita. And I was like, girl, get some lime LaCroix, like chill a glass, put it in the glass and salt the rim and it's the same thing. And she was so kind about it. She was like, okay, <laughs> cool. Um, fast forward six months, I'm pregnant. I'm dealing with all of those, like I'm scared before every appointment. I'm like paralyzed by fear when I wake up in the morning. I don't know um, if Lucia is still moving and I'm just, you know, just racing with those thoughts. Um, and I realized I just didn't get it because I hadn't been through it yet. Um, and then, you know, of course, inevitably, I get to the point where I want a glass of wine so bad. And I could not stop thinking about how I lacked empathy with her in that moment. I wanted it. I wanted to taste it. I wanted to feel it. I just wanted the wine. And I actually called her and apologized for saying that all she had to do was put this fizzy water <laughs> and that it was the same and that, you know, I kind of had belittled her feelings through that. Um, so this is basically a picture-perfect example of what not to do when you can't empathize with someone. So don't do what I did or you will get pregnant and you will have to make <laughs> 47 apologies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we are, you know, we are going to walk through empathy today. Um, but mostly I want us to see this as we're walking, talking about empathy, and it's under the arc of um, learning how to redefine strength in suffering and what that has to do with endurance. So last week we walked through the story of Jesus at the temple overthrowing tables at the site of injustice. Um, and we talked about kind of the part that we play in injustice, whether it's intentional or not. And so I kind of walked out thinking, you know, what would I have to see? What would I have to witness um, that would cause such a reaction in me that I would overthrow tables? Um, and I thought of some really horrible examples, right? Um, but unfortunately, they're not really things that we don't see. Um, we see injustice on the street corner. We see injustice at the grocery store. We see it in politics. Um, we see it in our friend groups around a table while we slander people that we love um, or don't love. And I'm not flipping tables about 
us avoiding eye contact with the homeless man on the corner. And I'm not flipping tables about pastors who take advantage of the very people they're supposed to be shepherding. And so I just realized, like, I, there's something that I'm missing. If it's not uh, a lack of exposure to the injustice, there's something that I'm missing in that. Um, and so just trying to really think, like, what did Jesus see at the temple when he is witnessing people reaching the end of their pilgrimage, having sacrificed everything, being taken advantage of, overcharged, left out? Um, what is he seeing in them that causes that reaction? Um, and I think that he saw himself. And if he saw himself, that means that before he even died on the cross, he was able to empathize with us. Um, so I want to invite you, we're going to kind of dig into the word to a few stories that we've you know, kind of all heard before. Um, but what we're going to pay attention to this time, these are all moments where Jesus was in distress, moments where he was suffering emotionally, physically, spiritually. Um, and I want us to pay attention to how he's responding to his own hurt. So we're going to start in John 11. Um, his dear friend Lazarus has just um, died. And Jesus is coming from another town. And he's specifically coming to raise Lazarus from the dead. Um, he's like alluded to this to his disciples. And they're just like, well, if he's sleeping, I don't see what the big deal is. Like, he'll wake up. It's fine. And he's like, no. He's dead, and we are going to bring him back to life. So he's, he reaches the outskirts of the town where Lazarus is buried. Um, he's been dead four days. Martha comes out and tells him that, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Um, and he says to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so Jesus responds, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she says to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. This is the part we're paying attention to. So Martha leaves. Mary comes out. Um, she's been kind of where Lazarus is. She's been mourning. And she comes out to the outskirts of town. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Jesus asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. So I want you to notice that there was a moment that Jesus saw that caused a reaction in him and how he dealt with it and how he could have dealt with it. There are a million things he could have done in that moment. He felt something and he wept. Tuck that away. Now we're going to meet Jesus in the wilderness at Matthew 4. Um, Jesus has just been baptized and scripture says he was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So he's been fasting for a long time. He's really, really hungry. He's struggling. He's probably got physical pains and stuff going on. And then Satan says, if you are God's son, turn the stone into bread. And Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Satan um, takes him to the holy city, to the top of a temple, 
and he's at this pinnacle. He says, if you are the son of God, jump down, basically, and, and God will save you. Um, and Jesus says again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. Then Satan basically takes him to a mountain, says, look at all these kingdoms. All you have to do is worship me. Just get on your face, worship me, and you can have all of this. And he says, be gone, Satan, for the word of the Lord says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Jesus is hungry, maybe hangry. We can empathize with that. He's got a lot of stuff going on. Um, he's not at his strongest. And what I want us to pay attention here is that he arms himself with scripture. So that even if he's not feeling it, he can speak that. Um, and this is an aside, but I think it's really, really sweet and really important that after this exchange with Satan, the Bible says he's tempted, and after this, he begins his preaching. Specifically, his preaching is about repentance. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there's something about that empathy that gives him the authority to be able, I mean, he has authority because he's Jesus, but from a place of empathy, he's able to say, I know the strength of sin, I know the strength of temptation, and I'm telling you to repent. Now we're going to meet Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. It's Matthew 26. Um, he's just had the Last Supper with his disciples, and he's just told Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter, of course, says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Um, so they go to this place called Gethsemane where he asks his disciples to sit with him um, while he prays. And, of course, I, I think from what I remember that he takes his disciples and then he takes an even smaller group with him to pray, which includes Peter and then two other um, people. So Peter, who is going to publicly deny him, is with him in this really like sacred place of sharing how he's feeling. Um, so Jesus, he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Um, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came back to his disciples and he finds them sleeping. Um, and he said to Peter, so you couldn't watch with me for one hour? <laughs> well, uh, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Um, and again, for the second time, he went and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Um, and it happens a third time, and he says the same thing, and then he basically says, well, the hour's here, and so kind of ushers them out. So just on an emotional level, Jesus has just told Peter that he's going to deny him. Um, and that very friend, he's witnessed what could be seen as not caring enough to stay awake. So there's that on a friend level. And then spiritually, he's troubled. He's anxious. He doesn't know what's coming up. He's never been crucified before. So, you know, that's it's a first, I mean... It's scary, and he probably has a lot of questions. Um, but he truly is a man of sorrows in this moment. And um, 
what he does with what he's feeling in that moment is he doesn't try to hide it. He doesn't try to put on this air of what strength is, what we think strength is. He invites his friends into his sorrow, and he's at his most vulnerable point up until this point in his life. Um, And he makes a request to God that he knows might not be fulfilled, but he asks. And that's honest. And now... um, this, the last moment we're going to meet Jesus at the cross. Um, he's been mocked. He's been nailed. He's been betrayed. Um, he's been on the cross for a really long time. Um, and then in Matthew 27, 45, it says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. At about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This um, moment is really important to me. It's a moment where Jesus has an audience. It's a moment where, in my head, you know, he can say anything. He can leave his last word. He can uh, try to be encouraging and kind of like a pick yourself up by your bootstraps moment. He could say anything. But instead, he directs his words to the Lord. And it's raw. And it's nothing for show. And he cries out the word, these words, and then he dies. And I want us to just sit in that for a minute, a minute, because I see myself thinking that I need to be strong for people and, and putting on whatever face I think that looks like. Um, and Jesus is saying just through his actions, that it's okay to say, I feel forsaken. I'm like, where are you? And that people are there to witness that. And what he does matters a lot. All these stories, everything we've kind of walked through, that matters. But it also matters what we don't see him do. So here are a few things that we don't see him do through any of these moments. He doesn't try to fake it. He doesn't hide his sorrow. He doesn't belittle his pain. He doesn't power through or need, find, feel the need to like, be strong in a way that's, um, that lacks integrity. Um, he doesn't make plans to keep himself distracted. Uh, he doesn't limit glorifying God to being smiley and giggly. He doesn't grumble or complain or dwell. I think sometimes in our heads, the opposite of smiley and giggly is like, well, I don't want to dwell on it. I don't want to sit in it. But he's not doing that either. He's just being honest in the moment and acknowledging his pain. Um, He doesn't compare the moments that he's walking through to something that someone else is going through that's harder. Um, This Jesus who acknowledges his hurt who weeps and cries out to God and invites others into his pain, who feels the physical pains of hunger and faces the lies of Satan. This is the Jesus who meets the woman at the well and his first words to her are, will you give me a drink? This is the Jesus who sees the man at the healing pool and his first words to him are, would you like to be healed? This is the Jesus who sees the woman caught in adultery, challenges her accusers, 
and then says to her, where are your accusers? Did not even one of them condemn you? He doesn't ask what God's teaching you through the suffering. He doesn't tell you to be thankful that you're going through it. He doesn't ask where God's working in your heart. He doesn't ask how you're rejoicing in suffering. His response to suffering is disarming. And it's disarming because he can empathize. Even when suffering doesn't look like suffering, like the way that we think it always does, it doesn't. Somehow Jesus sees the root and the pain, and he is able to meet us there. And after this week, I fully believe that it's because he didn't condition himself to push his own suffering down. Because that's what we do. We, we handle our own suffering and, then, and think it's going to have no bearing on how we meet people in theirs. And yet when somebody comes to us and is saying, I'm really struggling with this, I'm suffering with this, we have no idea how to meet them there because we can't even meet our own hearts in our suffering. So maybe there's a connection between the way Jesus dealt with his own distress, pain, and suffering and the way he met others in theirs. Um, and as I reflected on this question this week, asking all sorts of questions about the way that I approach people in their pain, uh, hence the story about Lauren, <laughs> um, I had to take a, a long look at the way that I approach pain in myself. Um, and most of you know that I have recently gone through a long season of kind of unknown sickness. And I mean, it's probably one of the darkest places that I've been internally and mentally. Um, I had to wrestle with a lot of questions that I've never really had to face before. And um, I think the hardest thing for me was having to realize that this equation I had preached um, and counted on, that like more faith would produce more healing, it didn't work. <laughs> uh, it didn't matter how much I said that I thought was glorifying to God. It wasn't really an exchange um, in that way. And, I mean, I begged. I, I cried out for God to join me and for him to just be in the room um, with me and for him to, to provide healing and comfort. Um, and this is the hardest part for me to say because I think it carries the most shame, but I, I genuinely felt nothing. Like I, I felt like he, I don't even know if you hear me. I don't know if you're here, but I, I don't see you anywhere. Um, and I found this journal entry uh, that I wrote in the midst of this. I said, I'm, f I'm afraid of you, God, of what you've done and of what you have not done. But even deeper than that, I'm afraid that in the face of trials, I was not who I'm supposed to be. I'm scared and desperate and untrusting. Is my health the wealth I can't put down in order to follow you? My heart is fearful. I don't know how I got here. And then I made a note under that that says, day 11. <laughs> um, and we like got into the 80-something days of this sickness, right? So this is like, this dragged. Um, and I've carried so much shame about this. And just this week, just walking through these moments with Jesus, I've found so much healing. Um, just reacquainting myself with Jesus as a man of sorrows and as someone who understands what I'm going through. Um, I had to lay down the idea that more faith would bring more healing when really it was 
I needed to stop seeing healing as the prize. I needed to take that down and put God back up there. Um, and that allowed me to endure. And in that process, ironically, I was healed. Slowly. But I was, and I'm here. Um, I hear a lot of people belittling their suffering, thinking that it's strength, when the truth is that our weakness is his strength. So you're not doing anyone any good by saying that it doesn't matter. Um, what that does to our hearts over time is condition us to respond to others and their suffering um, the same way we do to ours. So even talking about systemic change, I think this is where it starts, if all of us do this. Maybe the systems we create won't be this blanket statement of a system that should work for everyone. Um, the only way that we're going to endure to the end is to redefine suffering and endurance and to stop thinking, it, thinking of it as something that we need to survive um, and start realizing that we have to die a million deaths to ourselves and surrender ourselves to be more like Christ. Um, None of that looks like faking it. None of that looks like barreling through. It's about wrestling with integrity and honesty um, and asking hard questions as the rawest, most stripped-down version of ourselves. Because that's where you find your weakness, and that's where you find God's strength. Um, this week, I, well, a couple days ago, I woke up in the middle of the night with two verses that were just like screaming at me, like in a bad, scary way. Um, and one of them was the first uh, verse in James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Um, and then Romans 5. Not only so, but also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Um, my eyes like shot open in the middle of the night, and my heart just dropped, and I was just convinced that I was about to share a message that was opposite to these verses. Um, yeah, freaking out is an understatement about that. I, I kept picturing people walking out and being discouraged by this message and feeling uh, maybe afraid to walk through suffering. Um, but the more I pour over these, I realize I completely agree with these. I just read them and I feel the pressure to pump my fist and jump around and smile while I'm suffering. Um, but the truth is that this is the narrow road. We endure because we have hope in Jesus. And endurance produces patience. And patience isn't always pleasant. In fact, sometimes it really sucks. Mm -hmm. So if Jesus endured to the end, which he did, and he died willingly, and it was his joy to die, with us, to die for us, which it was, he didn't have to laugh and smile through the suffering to prove to us that it was worth it. And the lie is that our faith has to be unwavering and perfect, but the truth is that we serve an unwavering God, and he stands in the gap of our wavering hearts. 
So draw near to God, whether you feel him or not. Cry out like David. Wait like Jesus. Pray, not like Peter. Share your doubts and fears. Be desperate before the Lord. Remember who the enemy is. Your suffering is your road to empathy, and empathy will serve the least of these. I want to leave you with um, four questions for the week, just as you're reflecting on today. Um, What is my definition of suffering and endurance? What lies do I believe about the right way to suffer or grieve? What do I lean into when I'm comfortable hurting or being tempted? And what can I learn from Jesus about using my suffering to meet others and theirs? Um, Instead of praying over you guys, I'm going to um, read a bit of Psalm 40. So if you'll just bow your heads. I waited and waited and waited for God. At last he looked. Finally, he listened. He lifted me out of the ditch, pulled me from deep mud. He stood me up on solid rock to make sure I wouldn't slip. He taught me how to sing the latest God song, a praise song to our God. More and more people are seeing this. They enter the mysteries, abandoning themselves to God. Blessed are you who give yourself over to God. Turn your backs on the world's sure thing. Ignore what the world worships. The world's a huge stockpile of God wonders and God thoughts. Nothing and no one comes close to you. I start talking about you and telling what I know and quickly run out of words. Neither numbers nor words account for you. Doing something for you, bringing something to you, that's not what you're after. Being religious, acting pious, that's not what you're asking for. You have opened my ears so I can listen.